0: For every one of us, we tend to measure life a number of different ways, don't we? We measure it probably first and foremost by years. If someone says to you, well, why don't you tell me about yourself, more than likely we're going to say, well, I'm I'm 29 or 35 or 39 or some set of fibs along that line as we introduce ourselves, or I just turned 16 or I'm going to be. Another way to mark our lives is by key dates, like wedding anniversaries would be right there at the top of the list if you're married. I was married on July 11th, 1981. We're on our 30th year of of marriage. I wonder how many couples, I've done this each hour, how many couples have been married longer than 30 years? Let me see your hands. Okay, how about 40 years? All right, 50 years, Okay, 60 years. All right, uh, I got to 65 years. 70 years. Okay, so somewhere between 67 and anybody else? Wow, I'm not even halfway there. Congratulations, (laughs) sir. That's wonderful. I wonder, how many of you have been married less than five years? Let me see your hands. All right, all over. All right, four years, less than four years. Okay, less than three years. All right, two years. All right, one year. How many months? You, you can go and ask her. I'm sorry? Is that right, sir? Yes. A little over six months. Congratulations there. See, now you got an example of getting 60. Oh, did I miss somebody? I'm sorry. Over here. How many months? Uh, yes, ma'am, you tell me. Okay, all right. Second place, runner-up. Did I miss somebody? I have people wave. Okay, yes, sir. Five months. Wow. Anybody? Now, am I missing anybody? Over here. How many months for you? Three months. Yes, ma'am. How many? Okay. All right, I think three months. Why don't you? Oh, no, no, over here. My wife's waving at me, and I know it's not to say hi. Days. <laughs> what a show off. I tell you what, man. Good, good man. All right. Just don't forget, you know, when you get up to 65 years, 66 years, that's wonderful. I think those of us who are married measure obviously life before and after that event. Other people measure their lives, and I think we all do, by accomplishments. Maybe you can remember. Getting your driver's license, graduating from college or graduate school. For you, life was before that moment and life began after that moment. Maybe some other accomplishment. I know some golfers whose whose lives are everything was before that hole-in-one and after that hole-in-one. Another way we measure our lives is by critical decisions. Maybe you can remember when you took that job. Maybe you can remember when you moved here to the Cary area from New York, like 60% of you did, right? <laughs> you can remember maybe stepping down from that job or maybe entering uh, retirement. Hopefully, among the list of your critical decisions is the decision to accept Jesus Christ and his gospel for yourself, right? I, um, that would be the top decision. I have with me, in fact, I brought along, I usually keep this in my pickup truck. I had lost track of this little New Testament for many years. I can remember trusting Christ and giving my life to him when I was in my uh, junior year, ending my junior year of high school. And then I came across this little Bible now that I keep with me. Inside the flyleaf, in pencil, sort of fading, are the words, Conversion, May 18th, 1975. And so this, of course, for me is significant because my life before and after is now marked forever by that decision. Some of you remember and think about your life in terms of maybe a vocation you chose or a military stint that you did. Maybe deciding for years to enter a mission field. Maybe you took a trip and you came back and decided as we've had several families leaving our church to go over. And, and, and you'll remember forever when that plane touched down. Life was different before that moment and it changed forever after that moment. Those are those defining moments. They, they mark us, don't they? they? They stay with us. They say a lot about us as we relate them to other people and how we communicate about those events. I think all of us tend to mark our lives as well by significant trials, what we would call personal tragedies. Maybe you think of life as, well, you know, 10 years ago this month, my child passed away. Or maybe it was four years ago today I filed for bankruptcy. Or maybe it's... uh, Seven years ago, this month, we lost everything in that hurricane. Perhaps it was, it's like this. Well, um, four years ago, we got that diagnosis from the doctor. And life was one way until that moment, and then it changed. Uh, truthfully, I think all of us. Measure our lives by a combination of all the above, don't we? Decisions, ministry involvement, when we trusted Christ, major events in life, anniversaries, perhaps even graduations, and certainly trials. They mark us, they're defining moments in our lives. Well, if you've been with us for this month, we have been looking at a defining moment which will change life forever for an old faithful priest, Zacharias. We're in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. And on this particular day that we looked at and began our exposition through this chapter, he realized as he was in there offering his frankincense, that liquid perfume upon the coals of that altar of incense... That when that billowing perfume smoke went away, he recognized in that holy place that he was no longer alone. He was looking into the face of an angel. In chapter one, we'll identify this angel as Gabriel. There has been 400 years of silence, there's been no word from God, there have been no angel sightings. The nation, in their disobedience, have not been able to hear or have heard from God. The prophet Malachi, when he put down his quill, that was it. Until this angel appears, and Zacharias, we're told, was literally terrified. He's he's petrified. So Gabriel begins his message by saying what angels typically do say to human beings, stop being afraid. Now Gabriel has already appeared 500 years earlier, to a prophet named Daniel. You may remember that encounter if you've studied the book of of Daniel. And Daniel said, as a result of meeting Gabriel, it took my strength away and I literally fell down to the ground. Daniel, fortunately for us, describes Gabriel, which now Zacharias sees. Luke does not describe him. So just as an overview, not turning there, let me just give you that description. Daniel described Gabriel as wearing a linen robe, which was significant because the high priest wore a linen robe as he entered the Holy of Holies. It signified access to God. And the high priest will wear it as well. Gabriel informs Zacharias that he indeed stands in the presence of God. Gabriel is also described as wearing this belt made of solid gold, which no doubt reflected light from the candles burning in in the holy place wherever he turned. Gabriel's face is described by Daniel as having uh, an appearance as of lightning. In other words, it's brilliant. And so no doubt Daniel and Zacharias are looking at him like this, hard to, to concentrate or gaze upon someone so brilliantly as it were lit up. The eyes of Gabriel are described by Daniel as red coals burning, glowing red as if they are on fire. That'll only get your attention. And then as his arms and feet are described as polished bronze. His voice is described as a low rumble. You can now imagine why Daniel fell to the ground, and why Zacharias is in there in the holy place all by himself, apart from the angel, trembling, petrified, overcome with fear. And by the way, that was at the sight of only one angel. Gabriel is just one angel. Job chapter 38 informs us that the millions of angels were created these angels were created before the creation of the world. They sang, in fact, together, according to Job 38. They sang together as God, the Son, the Word spoke, Colossians tells us. He was the creating agent among the triune God, and the universe was created. And they all sang while he spoke. He, the Lagos, the Word of God. At that time, of course, all the angels were good. Sometime before or just after creation, the highest ranking among these created beings, Lucifer, his name, led an army of, of angels in a palace coup d'etat against the very throne of God. They were judged and they fell from their high and, and privileged estate. And we in the New Testament era refer to these beings more often than not, as demons. They are confirmed in their unholy rebellion, and ever since then, they have been growing in their rebellion. They do everything possible to thwart the purposes of God and defeat the work of God and diminish the worship of God, and they know full well they're moving ever closer to the ultimate and final wrath and judgment of God. In fact, when a demonized person met the Lord during the Lord's ministry, most often they said, we know who you are if you come to torment us before it's time. They know it's coming, but they so hate him, and they hate his people. They're not only under the thumb of our sovereign Lord, they're vastly outnumbered. In fact, when John the Apostle took that tour of heaven described for us in the book of Revelation, he sees this mind-boggling sight of at least 100 million angels worshiping before the throne of God. Gabriel is just one of them. And now he's just come from the throne of God, the presence of God, to deliver a message to Zacharias, this faithful 80-year-old priest. Let's go back to verse 13 of Luke 1. The angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you'll give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Now I want you to notice as Gabriel reveals to us the character and the career of John, we know him as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And I want you to be aware of three ingredients of his character that we'll look at first. We'll call the first one dedication. Dedication. Just the first phrase of verse 15 says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The word great is the word megas, which gives us our English transliterated word, mega, big, great, stupendous. John is going to be greatly significant in the sight of the Lord. This speaks not only to the depth of his character and his commitment, but it also speaks to the greatness of his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. I mean, what a great, what a commendable ministry occupied uniquely by this one person in redemptive history. I want you to notice what Gabriel does not say about John. He does not say, and he will be great in the sight of his religious world. He doesn't say... He will be great in the sight of his religious leaders. He will be great in the sight of his peers. No. They're not going to care for him, most of them, one iota. They're not going to be all that excited about this prophet, the first one they've heard from in 400 years who arrives, unannounced, no sanction from the rabbis or the religious leadership. He just starts preaching repentance He even claims the religious leaders need to repent. That's a popular message. Camel hair for his clothing. Austerity in his bearing. Wild honey and locusts as the staple of his diet, which means he lived in the wilderness. Thundering in his voice as he calls this nation back to repentance. That's not a popular message. He may be great in the sight of the Lord, but he's going to be irritating and strange in the sight of the locals. But he will be wholly devoted to the Lord. Secondly, the character of John will be marked not only by devotion, but dedication, but separation. Verse 15 again, just that next phrase, he'll drink no wine or liquor, sometimes translated perhaps in your Bibles with the word beer. In other words, He's not going to drink strong drink. He's going to live a life separated unto God. He's not going to drink strong drink, which would be equivalent to that drink in our culture. Why? Well, some believe it's because John is being raised as a Nazarite. He's fulfilling a Nazarite vow, so to speak. But there's nothing in the gospel accounts that speak of him not cutting his hair, which would be another indication of a Nazarite vow, and I, along with others, don't believe that that he is being raised as a Nazarite, I I believe John is not going to drink strong drink simply because he's functioning effectively as a priest, like his father, Zacharias. And according to Old Testament requirements, a priest was never allowed to drink strong drink while on duty. Leviticus chapter 10. And even after that, never to become intoxicated. John the Baptist, and by the way, I think it's an interesting conception or thought, like every Christian today who is, according to 1 Peter 2, a royal priest, is never off duty. Never off duty. In fact, the Apostle John will say, don't be under the influence of wine. Don't be intoxicated. But be dominated by by the holy spirit in other words don't let your mind be controlled by an intoxicating substance let your mind be controlled by the indwelling spirit and that leads me to the third ingredient of John's character the character of John will be defined not only by dedication and separation but by consecration notice the last part of verse 15 this is startling And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This filling was prenatal. The text does not mean, as liberals want to come along and try to torture it to mean, that John is going to be indwelt with the Spirit from birth, even from birth, because they don't like the implications of what it might mean. Obviously. Well, One expositor wrote it this way, such a total invasion by the Holy Spirit of God is unprecedented in Old Testament times. certainly in the womb in any dispensation. What's happening here is this. John's prenatal filling was prophetic, a picture of the filling of the Holy Spirit that will become the hallmark of all who are born again in Christ. At that moment, when you have, by virtue of your faith, trusted in Christ, life begins. At the moment of that conception of life, you get the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wait six months, ten months, two years, grow up, get more mature, and then maybe you get them. You got them at the conception of your spiritual life. Which then, by the way, becomes unbelievably significant in its revelation of our understanding of a pre-born child. A pre-born child is not some appendage. The angel doesn't refer to pre-born John as an it or a thing. In fact, notice the personal pronouns. Gabriel refers to the pre-born baby as he. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Imagine the truth of this. This is not fetal tissue, this is a living person at that conception, immediately wrapped inside that body, that embryo, is an eternal soul, a soul capable of being inhabited and dwelled by the Spirit of God. Now with that angelic introduction of his character, Gabriel refers to his career His career is going to impact three different elements within society. Let me point them out to you. First of all, his career will impact the disconnected. Verse 16, note there, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. You might circle the word turn. It's going to show up in verse 16, and then it's going to show up in verse 17. It means to convert. It means to turn around and it also has the nuance of meaning to cause a return to come back john's preaching is going to call the nation to come back to their covenant keeping god now notice verse sixteen he will turn cause a return among many of the sons of israel back to the lord their god verse seventeen it is he who will go as a forerunner they've amplified that to simply Describe the word before. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, the one we know as the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now what he's doing is quoting Malachi, the last prophet to have appeared and written. Malachi, the prophet, effectively said in his closing words that the coming Messiah would be preceded by the coming of Elijah. And then you have the silence of God descending upon the people the nation for more than 400 years but then the first prophet to appear on the scene does so it's this little boy now all grown up his name is john he's a direct descendant on his mother's side to aaron the high priest he he has come to introduce the descendant uh, on his mother's side to King David. So you have effectively the high priest introducing the king. You have the high priest introducing the final lamb sacrifice. Wonderful illustrations in these two cousins' lives and lineage. And the ministry of John. Will fulfill the promise of Malachi. In fact, it even mirrors his ministry as Elijah stood alone. Elijah fearlessly condemned the religious world. Elijah fearlessly challenged the nation, preaching to them repentance. In other words, he told everybody, You're going this way. You need to turn around. You're going in the wrong direction, and you need to go back this way to God. Become reconnected in obedience and repentance. God. Secondly, John's career will not only impact the disconnected, but the disinterested. Look at the middle part of verse 17. And here's the, the next reference to turning or returning. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. John's ministry will so impact the hearts of people that it would revolutionize the way they live inside the home. Fathers will be turned around so that they will, once again, care about their family. Because when a man is unconverted, when a man is pagan, when a man is rebellious, guess what he doesn't care about? His family. But when that man's heart is turned around by repenting to God, his heart goes To his home, he cares about his children and his family. So John's ministry will so impact the hearts of people that it's going to revolutionize the way they live in their homes. Regenerated hearts, you could principalize it this way, will redefine relationships. Fathers are going to come alongside mothers in caring for the development and growth of their children. Listen, this truth is still alive and well. That's the kind of impact the gospel has, even to this day. You go to a culture that has not been saturated or even built upon the foundational truths of the gospel or the word of God, and you will find a culture where children do not matter. And by the way, women don't either. They are chattel. They're beasts of burden. You go outside the Western world, predominantly influenced, of course, by centuries of the gospel, and you find polygamy is rampant. Adultery, in fact, is sanctioned for men only. If you're a woman and you do that, you get stoned to death. Children are the sole responsibility of the mother and don't let them get in the way of the father. But you get inside a culture impacted by the gospel and you'll discover, among many things, the value of a woman is dramatically increased. She is honored and respected, and valued. And the goal of a man is to faithfully love that woman that God has allowed into his life, and to care for the children that are viewed as gifts from God and not chattel. Faithful monogamy then becomes the ideal of that kind of culture. And everything else is discouraged. And so in our culture, by the way, and I'm sure you're way ahead of me, Where the Bible is being set aside, women are becoming things again, children unwanted, as men simply have their way. The gospel comes along, and men repent, and their hearts effectively go back home. I couldn't believe I was actually reading a USA newspaper. I mean, the NNO is bad enough, but the USA newspaper actually had an article in my files. I've dated 2004, and I'm sure they probably wouldn't print this again, but I pulled it. The article is entitled, and this gets your attention, it, sure, it certainly got mine Do Evangelical Protestant Fathers Really Know Best? Now, of course, I began to read that article assuming that they were going to kick these guys to the curb. That didn't happened? And again, it's hard to believe, and it drew fire and criticism. From our culture, and I'm shocked it was printed. But here it goes, and I quote Religious congregations give young families social support and enforce norms about what it means to be a good father. Protestant men are more likely to show affection toward their children than religiously unaffiliated men. I had to read that three times. They actually wrote that. I mean, I knew it'd be true, but it's amazing. It went on. They are more likely that as Protestant fathers are more likely to want to know what's going on in their children's lives. And committed Protestant men have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any singular group in the United States of America. Is that great or what? We know why. It's the gospel. The gospel influences culture. Our culture can't quite put the dots together, but that's what's happening. Here's something else you didn't hear in sociology. Western civilization did not produce Christianity. Christianity produced Western civilization with all of its freedoms and its values and its dignity, its treatment of women and children. Fathers who follow Jesus Christ want to pursue this kind of ideal, and they call it the norm. And when we fail, what do we do? We confess and then get back up on our feet. Amen? John's career is going to radically impact the disinterested. His career is going to impact the disobedient, thirdly. The last part of verse 17 reads, and the disobedient, again the antecedent verb is there, turned to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And with that, Gabriel ends his message. Doesn't mean I have, I haven't finished, but he finished his, okay? Zacharias, I know that you and your wife are 80 years old, but you're going to have a baby. And he's going to be the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, and I can just see—I can just see Zacharias in there. After hearing that, he probably spills frankincense all over his robe. His mouth is wide open. He doesn't know whether to faint, what to do. And verse eighteen, look there—it tells us that Zacharias' first words are. Oh, Gabriel, messenger from the living God, how wonderful this news is to my heart. Oh, wait. Maybe I didn't memorize the right verse. Zacharias' first word is, how? (laughs) How? How am I going to know this for certain? I get this. Zacharias is asking for a sign. He's in the holy place all by himself. An angel appears, eyes glowing like coals of fire, face like lightning, and Zacharias says, I need a sign. <laughs> I'm so glad God didn't clean this up. You know, so the prophet would have responded with a prayer or a blessing. How And would you give me a sign? Like, this isn't enough. I'm an old man. He says... Latter part of verse 18. I love this. And my wife is advanced. He doesn't say she's old. He says, I'm an old man. My wife's just advanced <laughs> in years. He's a wise man. I'm old. She's just, she's just mature. <laughs> I love the play on words, however. I am an old man, Gabriel says in verse 19. I am Gabriel. I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of the ageless one. In fact, I've just come from the great I am. And the obstacles of your I am are no match for the great I am. Okay, here's a sign. I'll give you a sign of your unbelief that will physically mirror the spiritual condition of the nation. They haven't been listening to me. They can't hear me. And they haven't been speaking for me. So you're not going to be able to hear or speak until your baby boy is born. That's your sign. Luke chapter 1 and verse 62, we don't have time there, but it tells us that Zacharias is not only unable to speak, but to hear he's making signs to everybody around him. And the people have been waiting for him to come out of the holy place he's supposed to be in there just for a few moments burning the incense and then he's supposed to come out to this portico and bless the people and they wait the tense of the verb says they keep waiting and they keep waiting and they keep waiting and they keep waiting and, keep waiting, and finally he comes out and he can't talk and he's making motions and i would agree with some who believe the rabbis and the priests more than likely wrote this guy off you're going to have a baby And you can't tell us about it? Why? Because you saw an angel? And he did this to you? You ought to retire. They wrote it off. In fact, we have no indication that they followed up on it. Just like the religious world did not follow up on all the things related to the birth of Christ. You'd think an entourage would head to Bethlehem, and they never did, remember? Remember? They just assume that Zacharias' mind is muddled. He's so excited about being able to go into the holy place. And now he comes out thinking he's going to have a son and a forerunner of the Messiah of all sons. And poor guy. The Bible tells us that he had to finish his week of service. Verse 23, when the days of his priestly service were ended. So, yeah, they wrote it off. They didn't believe him. In fact, they didn't even give him a free pass home after this happened. You finish your week. I know, this angel stuff. Just keep it to yourself. You finish your week of duty, and then you can go home. And as soon as his week is over, I can only imagine how Zacharias raced home. No doubt he's driving his mule way over the speed limit in fourth gear, probably reaching five miles an hour. Gets home, hops off his donkey, rushes in, gets a hold of Elizabeth, and starts making signs to her for her to understand, and she more than likely... Couldn't read his mind, and maybe thought he'd lost his mind. Zacharias got some reading material, maybe a slate, some parchment, and the more he began to write, the more she found it hard to breathe. We're going to have a what? A baby. Oh, oh, that's not all. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Honey, could you use a cup of tea? I'll be right back. You just sit here and rest your feet. You know what I think was more than likely happening? And I'm I'm guessing here. What I think is more than likely happening, and others agree with this part of it, that, that she probably already knew the news. She would already heard that her husband had suffered a stroke. That he was a bit addled. Maybe a little out of his mind. He'd gotten the, the, the privilege of going into the, the, the holy place. And there he just... Something happened we don't know. Poor fella. But he was seeing things and hearing things. And it's paralyzed his ability to speak and hear. And I can imagine with that kind of message that, that Elizabeth would have been waiting for him but in her heart I can imagine that she would have been saying Lord this too my husband has served you for 50 plus years we've lived under a cloud of suspicion it's never been easy for us and now he gets the chance to go in to the temple and in there he's Physically stricken. Why this? I think she was prepared for him to come home, and in her heart was an array of questions and even greater confusion as to the providence of God who it had seemed to them as a couple didn't know them or care or understand them. They had lived under the cloud of his displeasure in this Abrahamic covenant period of time because they couldn't have children. Assumed that they're under the displeasure of God. Somehow he just looked over them. Well, now he gets into the holy place. He's representing the nation in prayer to you and you do this. Most often, we're never enlightened to those things that do mark us, challenge us. We don't get trials in a little box, and on top, when we open it, is a little booklet of instructions on how it's all put together. We're only encouraged to trust and persevere, and His grace is going to be sufficient Zacharias, you and Elizabeth you're to name your son the grace of God John about 11 years ago I shared with our congregation an illustration of how answers sometimes come late in life and this came back to my mind I'm going to read a lengthy section and then we'll pretty much be done Answers coming late in life to the mysterious working of God's plan. In 1921, a young missionary couple left Sweden for the interior of Africa. This is out of Jim Simbola's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, printed in 2001. They were soon joined by another young missionary couple, and together they decided to go to a remote village where the gospel had never yet arrived. When they got to the village, however, the chief rejected them and would not let them enter his village for fear of displeasing the local gods. So these two couples had no choice but to go up a hillside on a slope of land and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, none came. The only contact they had was with a young boy who was allowed from the village to come and sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. One young couple by the name of Savea and David Flood decided that if this was the only villager they could talk to, Savea decided that she would make him her mission and take every advantage of it. So over the course of time, she taught him how to read and write. She introduced him to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he accepted the Lord. Beyond that little boy, there were no other advancements made into that village. He was it. In the meantime, malaria began to stalk them. The other couple finally decided they'd had enough. There were no open doors here. And they left David and Svea flood alone on that hillside in their mud hut. In the midst of these trying times, Savea became pregnant and only then did the village chief soften his hard stance against them and allowed a midwife from the village to help her when she delivered their little girl. But it was all too much of a strain for this young missionary woman. She was weak from her delivery along with her own personal battle with malaria. She lived only another 17 days and then died. Something caved in at that moment in her husband's heart and mind. David Flood dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and took his baby girl down the mountain to a mission station where he handed her to a missionary couple and said, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. I can't take care of a baby. God has ruined my life. He is not good With that, he turned his back on his daughter, his ministry, on God himself. Within eight months, a little girl they'd named Ina was alone again, for her adoptive parents also died of malaria. Ina was given to yet another missionary couple who was retiring from the field, and they brought her home with them and raised her in the United States. Changing her name to Aggie, she grew up under the care of her adoptive parents in South Dakota. She eventually attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis and married a man who entered the ministry. She knew very little of her past. She only knew her parents' names, the fact that she had been born in Africa, that her mother had died soon afterward, and that her father had given her up for adoption. She assumed her father still lived in Sweden, but she'd never met him. In the meantime, she enjoyed her growing family and fruitful ministry, supporting her husband, who eventually became the president of a Bible college in Seattle, Washington. Then one day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in their mailbox at home. She had no idea who sent it. In fact, she couldn't even read the language. It was a complete mystery. But as she stood there turning the pages, all of a sudden, A photograph arrested her attention. It was a jungle setting in Africa. The photograph focused on a grave with a simple white cross at the head of it and carved into that little white cross was the name Svea Flood, her mother. She rushed to the office of a college faculty member who could translate the magazine article. He summarized it for her telling her, well, it's about missionaries who came long ago, the birth of a baby, the death of the young mother, The one little African boy had been led to Christ by the woman before she died. How after the missionaries had left, that boy had grown up and persuaded the chief to let him build a school. He won all of his students to Christ, eventually their parents, the chief also. Today there are 600 believers in that village. For their 25th wedding anniversary, the Bible college gave them a vacation trip to Sweden where, among other things, Aggie could finally search for her father. She discovered that he had remarried years earlier, had a family of four children, but the bitterness had slowly taken its toll. He'd only recently suffered a stroke. After an emotional meeting with her half-brothers and sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father and they replied, well, that would be wonderful. You can go and talk with him even though he's very ill. But you need to know that he's had one rule in our family all these years and no one has ever been allowed to break it. The rule was simply this. Never, ever mention the name of God because God, he taught us, is not good. Aggie was undeterred. When she finally walked into his bedroom Her father was now 73 years old, lying in bed in frail condition. He turned toward her, and when he saw her, immediately began to weep, and he said, Ina, I am so sorry. She replied, it's all right, Papa. God took care of me. The old man instantly stiffened the tears, stopped as he said, God, God, God forgot us. God forgot us out there. And he turned his face back toward the wall. Papa, you didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. God was at work through you. That little boy who accepted Christ grew up to win the whole village to Jesus Christ. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord, a vibrant church, because you followed the call of God in your life. Papa, God had a plan all along. He had not forgotten. He turned back toward her from facing the wall, and they began to talk. And by the end of that afternoon, the kindness of God had brought him back to repentance, restoration, and fellowship with his Savior. And a few weeks later, David Flood went home to heaven. It's not the end of the story. A few years later, Aggie and her husband were attending an evangelism conference in London a report was given during that conference from the nation of Zaire by the superintendent of the National Church, which now represented more than 100,000 believers. He spoke eloquently about the spread of the gospel in his country. And afterwards, Aggie couldn't help but go up and ask him if he'd ever heard of her parents, David and Savea Flood. Oh, yes, ma'am, he said. As a little boy, I used to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. It was your mother who led me to Christ. They embraced for a long time. And then he said, you must come to visit us. Your mother is the most famous person in our church history. (laughs) And in time, Aggie did come and was welcomed by cheering throngs of believers. Eventually, she was led to her mother's grave with that white cross and the words written on it, Suvea Flood. She knelt in the soil to pray and to give thanks to God who had been good. While the national church leader read from Scripture, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Friends, there will come a day when everyone's story will make sense. For most, it will not be this side of heaven. But for a few, answers come and God's plans are revealed so that the grace of God can be magnified and our faith built up. I can see Zacharias and Elizabeth as he's writing on a a slate or parchment there at their kitchen table in this little humble farmhouse. Late in life, the answers came. And I wonder, what would he have written? What did he write? Maybe something like Elizabeth. We've had 50 years of tears, we've had 50 years of ministry without answers. We clung to the belief that God was worthy of service and worship. That God was good. Not so much to us, but he was good. Just think, Elizabeth, your disgrace will soon be over. This was his plan all along so that it could only be God who could do this. We're going to have a baby and not just any baby. We're going to have a son who will introduce the Son of God. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin debt of the whole world. And that gospel that Gabriel announced, that good news, will not be delivered to one village alone or or even one geographical area that That gospel will be delivered to our nation, but eventually it will go around the globe. See, for this godly couple, I want you to understand that that their life would be measured. They would view life in two sections. One before that angel came. And that was most of it. Most of their lives. And then in their 80s, the day the angel came. And delivered the news to them of their soon to be delivered Son, whose gospel will to this day, not just his generation, but our generation, provide the foundation for forgiveness and hope and joy. Let's pray for just a moment, shall we? The Spirit of God perhaps has taken you in your own mind to a place where you can identify with Zacharias and Elizabeth, to the outer edges of your faith and trust, where the first words that come to your mind are words like, how and why, and I want a sign. (laughs) Maybe today the greatest statement of your faith is to believe that God is good. To ask His Spirit to open your eyes to see the good, to be alert to it. To see that the greatest good is the great I am. Father, our hearts need daily Converting, as it were, returns over and over again. Though we've been saved by faith in Christ and indwelled by the Spirit, so often we walk in the wrong direction. We focus on the wrong things. Thank you for both the confusion and the despair and the disillusionment and the joy that you've allowed us to see in this couple as the gospel is about to be revealed like never before. In the meantime, help us to trust and to pursue and to worship you, the greatest and highest object of any thought we could ever have any relationship we could ever have, that you might be glorified in and through us. In my life, Lord, be glorified, sing. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. you go in his peace and grace.